Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. So I'm here today to address the idea uh, that many of you may have already heard. So I'm going to ask you if you've ever heard of a conflict between Christianity and modern science. Raise your hand. Okay. Most of you are aware of that. I'll actually share some sociological data a little bit later to show that a lot of people uh, have thought about a conflict between faith and science. And I want to talk about the root of that idea, go into that a little bit more in just a second. Before I do, I actually want to offer you something to look at and think about that I'll get back to in my talk. And it's an image that's only, whoops, partially represented he, uh, on the first slide, but more fully represented here. It's a political cartoon by the famous American political cartoonist Thomas Nast, who was the greatest political cartoonist of his day in the late 19th century. I'll just let you look at that for a few minutes. Try to catch some of the details there, up to and including the words on the bottom. And so the significance of this image will become more important to understanding and why it's related to the whole idea of conflict between faith and science a little bit later in the lecture, right? But I want to address this idea, the conflict, or what is oftentimes called by historians of science, the warfare model of science and religion in this lecture, specifically the idea that scientific inquiry and the Christian faith, and I'm going to focus as a Catholic theologian on the Catholic faith and the church, that they are intractably opposed to each other, and that the weight of historical evidence supports that characterization. If you look back in history and you really understand history, it's all about religion and science at war with one another. And according to this way of thinking, according to the conflict thesis, as it's called, there is no possibility of harmony between science and faith, because it's assumed that they are rival ways of explaining the universe. And their practitioners are aware of this and are actively fighting each other for supremacy, which will win, science or religion. That has become a deeply rooted assumption in the minds of many Americans. And recent research reveals that the perspective of many young American Catholics today has been shaped by it. As many as 70% of Roman Catholic emerging adults, people your age up to about 30, Um, according to sociologist Christian Smith. And the one I have bold-faced here in the middle is the one that I find the most unsettling. That 78% of Roman Catholic emerging adults who have stopped practicing their faith cite the conflict of science and religion as the reason they no longer practice their faith. So... How to talk about this? Well, I want to approach it in three steps. 
First, I want to establish the historical co context and the specific persons and events that gave rise to the idea that faith and science are in conflict, which can be traced to the late 19th century and the work of two American authors whose claims about the history of conflict between faith and science were discredited both then and have been repeatedly discredited since by serious historians. One of them was a scientist and a popular history writer by the name of John William Draper, and the other one was an actual historian named Andrew Dixon White. It's not an exaggeration I hope to demonstrate to say that these two together gave rise to the conflict approach that so many people today accept as unquestionable. In fact, scholars in the history of science often simply refer to it as the Draper and White conflict thesis. So it even bears their names. I hope to offer not just a look into their own work, but also offer some insight into why their works were so successful and also how their false claims about faith and science persist even to this day. Now, the second thing that I want to do is suggest that the church's theological tradition, as embodied in a number of great thinkers, reveals a much different approach than what Draper and White actually accused that tradition of having. Um, I want to identify two principles that are at play throughout the church's history in the way that the church's great thinkers have engaged theologically with scientific inquiry and discovery. In other words, how they've reflected theologically on what science has revealed about the world. And it's these principles bequeathed to us by sacred tradition that I believe are the most important for engaging the church's mission in regard to seeing um, the harmony between faith and reason and faith and science specifically. All right, so that's my task, and I hope to do all of that in 45 minutes and also answer your questions. One thing you'll note, though, is I'm getting very close to the end. Um, if, when you see the beer, the end is near. Just keep that in the back of your head. Okay. To trace the roots of the conflict model, we have to place ourselves in mid to late 19th century America and recognize three trends that were going on then. Two of them intellectual trends and one sociocultural trend. These three trends together set the stage for the success of Draper and White in their claims about conflict between faith and science. The first intellectual development can be traced back to the 17th century, a suspicion of any Christian doctrines other than moral teachings. Terms that you've heard perhaps at church or in theology classes, such as dogma or divine mystery, articles of faith. Those words began to be used pejoratively to characterize foolishness and fear of progress, even to characterize religious deception. That's best captured in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1816 to his friend, the Dutch Unitarian minister Adrian Vanderkamp, about the dogma of the Trinity. He wrote, ridicule is the only weapon which can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them, 
and no man ever had a distinct idea of the Trinity. Why, well, right? God is one and three. Difficult to fathom, right? It is the that is the dogma of the Trinity is the mere abracadabra of the tricksters calling themselves the priests of Jesus. Now, by the late 19th century, Thomas Jefferson's conception of dogma and divine mystery had really begun to prevail much more widely. Dogmas, theological dogmas, mysteries of faith, began to be seen by many as anti-rational, the products of blind and dangerous faith. And many came to think that science should replace dogmas in a crusade to rescue religion from irrational ideas. Uh, the recognition that dogmas have to do with realities that are by nature unable to be fully comprehended because they are not in any way assertions about the universe, but are the self-revelation of God who transcends our comprehension. Well, that was lost to view. The second intellectual trend was actually much more positive. In the 19th century, the various areas of study to which we now refer with the umbrella term science, such as physics, chemistry, biology, were being professionalized. And they were taking on a whole new level of respectability and they were inciting popular enthusiasm through the new knowledge and the industrial and medical benefits they were producing. For science, the late 19th century was one of the very best of times. This was the age of Lyell's geology, giving the first glimpse of the ancient age of the earth, of Pasteur's germ theory, above all of Darwin's origin of species. As a result, science as we define it today began to stand out as a specific and separate pursuit. And that change in perception even involved a change in vocabulary, in the English vocabulary. Before the 19th century, the word science referred to any knowledge demonstrated logically, including theological knowledge. Um, when St. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages writes about theology, one of his famous questions in his Summa Theologiae is, is theology a science, a scientia? To which he answers, yes, it is. The words philosophy and science before the late, whoops, the late 19th century were treated as synonyms. Um, as in the title of a book that was published in 1821. Listen to the title of this book. Elements of the philosophy of plants containing the scientific principles of botany. Do you see how philosophy and science, those two words are being used interchangeably here? By the late 19th century, the terms science and scientific method began to be associated exclusively with the study of the physical universe through observation and experiment. And as I said, this change in perception added new words to the English vocabulary. Terms such as scientist and physicist. Those words were coined in 1833 by the Anglican theologian and natural philosopher William Ewell. They didn't exist before that time. Sadly, the restriction of science and the science word family to one kind of human knowledge, the kind of human knowledge that happens in laboratories and in fields using uh, experimental methods, left open the possibility that other areas of knowledge, such as philosophy, such as art, such as ethics, such as theology, 
those could be kind of set aside as unfruitful, subjective flights of fancy by comparison. Remember I said there were three trends. Those are the two intellectual ones. But now I want to talk about the sociocultural one, which is going to bring us back to the image you saw at the beginning. The sociocultural trend was the rise of anti-Catholic prejudice and even mania in the United States as a response to the influx of Irish and other Catholic immigrants beginning in the mid-1840s. From the perspective of the Catholic Church in the United States, the mid to late 19th century was not one of the best of times. It was one of the worst of times. And the decade of the 1870s marked a high point of anti-Catholic prejudice. One thing that was going on was that the American bishops were seeking tax-exempt status for tuition at Catholic schools. And there was a fierce battle, which they lost, right? Even to this day, in most places in the United States, you cannot get a tax exemption for tuition to a Catholic grammar school or elementary school, etc. In 1871, at Harper's Weekly, a famous political cartoonist whom we've already met, Thomas Nast, published what many regard as one of his greatest images, the American River Ganges. The image shows a Protestant school teacher here, public school teacher, with a Bible tucked in his waistcoat, shielding a group of young children from menacing crocodiles who are creeping up the shore in order to devour them. But when the crocodiles are viewed closely, one realizes that the jaws of the crocodiles are ornate jewel-encrusted bishop's miters and that the predators are actually Irish Catholic bishops. On the cliff, the New York politician um, William Tweed, who is known as Boss Tweed, and his cohorts are handing children down to be devoured. Behind him, there is a gallows, and Lady Liberty is being led off to be hung. Across the water is what looks like what? Does anybody know from, I'll give you a hint, it's in Rome. The Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica, right? Um, across the water is what looks like St. Peter's Basilica, but the name inscribed on it is Tammany Hall, the Democratic Party political machine run by Boss Tweed. And on the colonnade of the basilica, right there, um, can be seen the words, the political Roman Catholic school. And in the foreground, the U.S. public school is crumbling. Now, while that phenomena in itself had nothing to do with the change in perceptions about science, it did create an intellectual environment in which bigotry and prejudice against Catholics was ripe to be exploited for social and political change. The majority of Catholic immigrants were poor and illiterate, which gave their religion an air of ignorance and superstition to non-Catholic Americans. Right? That largely successful uh, attempt to forbid public aid to Catholic schools often drew upon fears like this one does, and like the first image you saw, that Catholics secretly wanted to bring, come on in, that Catholics secretly wanted to bring the entire nation under the control of the Pope by corrupting education. So a bias against the possibility of Catholics being open to the progress of knowledge ruled the day. 
False claims about the history of the church and science could draw upon the fuel of anti-Catholic fears and hatred to promote the greatness of science to the detriment of religion. So let's summarize all that, those three trends. First, dogmas and mysteries, theological mysteries, are obstacles to human progress. Science is the new gold standard of human progress, and the Catholic Church is the enemy of human progress. Okay? With those assumptions, the situation was ripe for claims of conflict between science and the Catholic faith, and they would not be long in appearing. In 1874, John William Draper, a successful American chemist and early innovator of photography, actually the first human being to ever photograph the moon, published a book entitled History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. He begins by making a generalized judgment. The history of science, he wrote, is not a mere record of isolated discoveries. It is the narrative of the conflict of two contending powers, the expansive force of the human intellect on one side and the compression arising from traditional faith. Shortly after that declaration, he qualifies it by proclaiming the innocence of Protestant and Greek Orthodox Christians, whom he claims have never opposed the advancement of knowledge and have always had, and I'm quoting him, a reverential attitude to truth from whatever quarter it might come. He later refers to Protestantism as the twin sister of science. The true religious enemy is, want to take a guess? The Catholic Church, which he indicts for rejecting science and engaging in violent means so as to maintain power over its adherents in its attempt to gain total political supremacy over all peoples. Here's what he says. And speaking of Christianity, reference is generally made to the Roman Church. None of the Protestant churches has ever occupied a position so imperious. None has ever had such widespread cultural influence. But in the Vatican, we only have to recall the Inquisition. The hands that are now raised in appeals to the most merciful are crimsoned. They have been steeped in blood. Sounds like very objective history writing, right? Throughout the rest of the book, Draper alleges conflict after conflict after conflict between the Catholic Church and science. While offering little or no evidence, he makes up details and presents them as facts. He rearranges sequences of events in order to support his position. He selects quotes that seem to support his case and refuses to give the context even leaving out parts of quotes that call into question his interpretation of them. Let me give you an example of that third one. Draper condemns the Catholic bishop and theologian St. Augustine for teaching that the sky is stretched like out like a skin over a flat earth. Actually, in this particular writing, Augustine is quoting Psalm 104, verse 2 that says, Lord, my God, you were great indeed. You stretched out the sky like a skin. Why is he quoting it? Well, Augustine is quoting it in order to demonstrate his principle that the Bible must be read figuratively, not literalistically, in its depictions of natural phenomena. 
He actually, in the very next sentence, affirms the very position Draper accuses him of rejecting. Rational arguments, Augustine concludes, informs us that the sky has the shape of a hollow globe all around us. You notice he said globe there? Very important. If it has the shape of a hollow globe, what is it covering? A globe. We'll get back to that in just a moment. So Draper ends his book with his own prophecy of doom for religion and victory for science. As to the issue of the coming conflict, he writes, can anyone doubt whatever is resting on fiction and fraud will be overthrown? Institutions that organize impostures and spread delusions must show what right they have to exist. Faith must render an account of herself to reason. Mysteries, remember that first trend, must give way or must give place to facts. Religion must relinquish that imperious, that domineering position which she has so long maintained against science. So despite his fury and contempt for religion, especially Catholicism, or more likely in his day because of it, Draper's book was a massive success. The conflict outsold every other book in the series in which it was included. Since then, it has been reprinted 50 times. It has been translated into 10 languages. And even today, it remains readily available. Now, numerous critics emerged to respond to Draper's work, including uh, the distinguished Orestes Brownson, the celebrated intellectual and Catholic convert who was interred in Sacred Heart Basilica at Notre Dame. See, if you work at Notre Dame, you have to say things like that. Anyway, one shared criticism of all of those who responded to um, Draper is that the conflict seemed to be written with the primary aim being not accurate history writing, but bestseller status, kind of like the Da Vinci Code of its day. In the May 23rd, 1875 issue of the San Francisco newspaper, The Daily Alta California, one reviewer put it this way. He said, Draper may be a rhapsodist, but he is no historian. He is neither unprejudiced nor painstaking. If he investigated authorities, he does not dare to cite them to sustain his ballooning allegations. His book is an immense pretension. More importantly, this anonymous reviewer knows that the real facts of history are quite the opposite of what Draper claims in many cases, showing that Draper was not invincibly ignorant. Had he done any serious research, he would have known better. He corrects Draper on three claims. First, he correctly notes, according to modern historians of our own day, this reviewer correctly notes that the murder of the philosopher Hypatia by a mob in Alexandria, Egypt, in the year 413, was not animated by, and this is his words, Christian and fear and envy of her skill in mathematics, but by politics. It was a political squabble. He also points out that Giordano Bruno's execution by the Inquisition was this is now in the uh, in the 15, late 1500s, right, basically before the time of Galileo, that Giordano's ex execution by the Inquisition was really because of theological heresies. He denied the Trinity, the whole host of things. While Draper claims that he was primarily executed because of his belief, quote, in a plurality of worlds and a heaven filled with space and stars. Um, 
Finally, this reviewer knows that Galileo's condemnation had more to do with his recklessness and lack of discretion than any entrenched theological or ecclesial antagonism toward any cosmology, Draper says, that threatened the assertions of the Bible. If you're interested in that topic, I recommend Ronald Numbers' book, a 2009 book, Galileo Goes to Jail and Other Myths of Science and Religion, to see that this and the other critics of Draper's conflict have been vindicated repeatedly by contemporary scholarship. In short, over and over again, historians have shown that what Draper was claiming, right, was contrary to truth. Andrew Dixon White was an American historian, and he was the co-founder of Cornell University in the year 1865. Cornell has a distinction of being the first purely secular private institution of higher learning in the United States. And for that, he was subjected to criticism for separating learning from religion, criticism that came mostly from competitors at Protestant institutions of higher learning like Harvard. In response, White decided to write a book showing that both religion and science would be better off once, quote, dogmatic theology, close quote, a subject not included in the curriculum at Cornell, interestingly, was fully overcome. In a letter to his friend Ezra Cornell, his co-founder, in 1869, he wrote, I will give them, meaning their opponents, a lesson they will remember. He delivered that lesson to his opponents over the next 27 years, in which he published 27 articles, that he finally brought together in a two-volume work entitled History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, first published in 1896. He begins by praising Draper for, quote, his work of great ability. He then goes on to repeat many of Draper's errors, including one that remains quite popular today. How many of you were taught in school, maybe some of the older folks, I was at my Catholic grammar school in uh, right outside of New Orleans, Louisiana. How many of you were taught in school that up until Columbus's time, everyone believed that the world was flat? Anybody ever heard that or? Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, the flat earth dogma is what Draper calls it. Oh, sorry, that White calls it. White claims that until Christopher Columbus's time, the majority of Christian thinkers had insisted on biblical grounds that the earth was flat and that flat earth was practically a dogma of the Catholic Church. In reality, only two Christian thinkers of record, the Roman Christian apologist Lactantius, who wrote in the uh, mid-third to late fourth century, or the late third to uh, early fourth century, and the Byzantine monk Cosmas Inducopleustes, who lived in the sixth century AD, only those two had ever argued that the earth was flat. St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, all testify to the sphericity of the earth, as does St. Albert the Great and popular writers such as Dante and Chaucer. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas, in the very first article of the very first question of the very first book of his enormous Summa Theologiae, says this, and I quote, Sciences are differentiated according to the various means through which knowledge is obtained. For the astronomer and the physicist, or really what he uses there, the word is the ma a mathematician, right? For the astronomer and the mathematician both may prove the same conclusion, that the earth, for instance, is round, but they prove it in different ways. 
Right. We've known since the ancient Greeks that the world is round. Despite that mountain of evidence, white represents the entire Christian tradition as committed to a flat earth and presents Lactantius and Cosmos as typical representatives. To add a touch of drama, he adopts Washington Irving's fictional account of Christopher Columbus struggling unsuccessfully to convince Catholic priests and professors that the earth is spherical at the University of Salamanca in 1487. Here's what he says. The warfare of Columbus the world knows well. How sundry wise men of Spain confronted him with the usual quotations from the Psalms, from St. Paul, and from St. Augustine, who, by the way, we already saw, sees the world as a globe. How even after he was triumphant, Columbus, that is, and after his voyage had greatly strengthened the theory of the Earth's sphericity, the church by its highest authority solemnly stumbled and persisted in going astray. Well, had White done his homework, he would have discovered that all parties at Salamanca agreed with Columbus that the earth is spherical and not flat. What was debated at Salamanca was the size of the earth. Columbus thought it was small enough to get to Asia with sufficient supplies. His opponents thought it was much larger. And as it turns out, the sundry wise men and priests of Salamanca were right, and Columbus was wrong, right? Although none of them knew what lay between Europe and Asia, right? Which would be the Americas and the Pacific Ocean. Okay, so the one-two punch of Draper and White has had a remarkable long-standing effect on popular opinion. Appealing to the prejudices of their day and riding the wave of scientific progress it could be said that they created the very conflict that they claimed to resolve. The errors and misrepresentations they foisted upon their readers are now routinely repeated as historical facts by non-historians, finding new life in various places. For example, in the work of science popularizers such as Neil deGrasse Tyson, who in 2014, in his 2014 series Cosmos, adopted Draper's account of the execution of Giordano Bruno. Um, before him in the original Cosmos Theory, which came out when I was a teenager, uh, Carl Sagan talked about Galileo being tormented in a Catholic dungeon. Never happened. But anyway, we can talk about that later, maybe. The flat earth dogma is so widespread that, as we've already seen, many of us here tonight were taught it in elementary school. In 2012, even U.S. President Barack Obama repeated it in a jibe against political opponents. If some of these folks were around when Columbus set sail, they probably would have been founding members of the Flat Earth Society. They would have not have believed that the Earth was round. We can hardly blame the president for coming up with something that has been taught as fact to so many people and yet is, in fact, not factual at all. Okay, that's the first part of my talk, to talk about where the conflict thesis comes from. Now I'd like to set the record straight in the second part of my talk. Draper and White excoriated the Catholic Church for its emphasis on dogma and revealed religion. Their approach resonates a great deal, interestingly, with that of Martin Luther, though in a way that Luther would neither have anticipated nor desired. Remember, Luther held up the Bible as the sole source of re religious truth, right? And the antidote to what he saw as the corruption of tradition. Draper and White take out the Bible and Christian doctrine and replace it with science as the sole source of truth, and attack the Christian theological tradition in the name of science. 
So Luther's insistence on sola scriptura, you've heard that term before, I'm sure, uh, is replaced with their insistence on sola scientia, science alone. Now, I think this brings up a very interesting issue. And just a little background here. Forgive me for this because I'm a theologian, right? In the Catholic Church's understanding of God's revealed truth, it is not simply scripture alone, but scripture and tradition to which that truth comes to us, right? We don't simply read the Bible and all of a sudden we all understand what God has revealed. We have to be guided by the Spirit in understanding that, and the Spirit does that precisely through history by helping the church understand what God has revealed. And we call that history the church's tradition, right? Um, a lot more could be said about that, but suffice it for now to say that that actually puts a great deal of weight and emphasis on the history of the church, right? Uh, Draper and White were right to point at history, although they pointed at it in error, right? To look for how the church receives science, right? Because it is that history that tells us how to understand and interpret what God has revealed in sacred scripture. You could go so far as saying that sacred scripture is God's word written long ago, whereas sacred tradition is Jesus Christ, the word of God, living within his church throughout history, in the here and now, helping us understand what the Bible is telling us. Do you follow me on that? Well, if that's true, then we ought to be able, if we want to say that there is a really, not a conflict, but a harmony between faith and science, we ought to be able to go back and find evidence of that in that history, right? Well, that's what I'd like to do right now. When we approach sacred tradition in this way, as the living encounter of the church with Christ through history, the objective critique for Draper and White becomes even more pressing. What is the witness of the church's tradition in regard to scientific discovery and the natural world? Can we find any continuity among the great thinkers whom the church has celebrated for their insights into divine truth regarding how to listen to science and scientists? I suggest that there are at least two important principles we can find running like golden threads through the church's history that help reveal the witness of sacred tradition regarding science and nature, and that are crucial to overcoming, to dispensing with the idea of conflict. Those two ideas would be, first of all, the idea of keeping faith and reason together and allowing reason to influence our faith. And the second one is a principle I'll talk more about later and give more explanation of, which is the principle of the integrity of nature for the sake of honoring God's wisdom. So those two things, right? Faith and reason together, the integrity of nature. I'm going to explain both of them and give examples of each. Now, Draper claimed that a divine revelation admits of no improvement, no change, no advance. It discourages all new discovery. Those are his words. Indeed, according to White, he has the same idea. According to White, the definition of papal infallibility in 1870 requires that nothing new ever be asserted, even in matters of empirical investigation. Ignoring, by the way, the church's limitation of the charism of infallibility to matters of faith and morals. That infallibility has nothing to do with science or scientific discoveries. This is what he said omniscience, 
cannot be limited to a restricted group of questions. In its very nature, it implies the knowledge of all and infallibility means omniscience. No, it doesn't. Okay. Doesn't mean that the Pope knows all things, right? It means that the church's teachers are, under solemn circumstances, assisted by the Holy Spirit to avoid error in matters that are essential to our salvation. But we can talk more about that at another time or later. Quite to the contrary, this idea that we could never have any kind of advance in any way whatsoever. We have numerous examples of great thinkers in the church's history embracing well-demonstrated facts about the universe and the established scholarly insights of the age in which they live. And, and this is the key, allowing new knowledge to challenge their understanding of revealed truths and bringing about what is called development in Christian doctrine. In short, they let reason inform their faith. I want to give you a few examples. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, written in 414 AD, St. Augustine relied on established astronomical observations to come to the conclusion that the first creation account, that's the first chapter of Genesis, right? The seven-day creation account, must be symbolic and not factual. That is, not a scientific treatise, but a symbolic <clears throat> representation of creation. Why? Well, in the first creation account, Augustine observed, each day ends with evening came and morning followed. And so he realized that the six days mentioned could not possibly be days in the way we think of actual 24-hour days. Because it was well known at Augustine's time that the time of night and day are different in various parts of the world, as we know, right? On California right now, the sun is still shining, but not here in North Carolina. He said, and I'm quoting him, but if I say that the days are 24-hour periods, I'm afraid I will be laughed at by those who know for certain that during the time when it is night with us, the presence of light is illuminating those parts of the world past which the sun is returning from its setting to its rising. So then, are we really going to station God in some part of the world where evening can be made for him while the light withdraws from that part to another? Of course not, right? That would be an overly simplistic understanding of God that would not do justice to who God is. Or consider the response of St. Robert Bellarmine to Galileo's claim that the earth moves around the sun and the possibility that Galileo's idea contradicted certain passages of Scripture. For example, the passage in Joshua chapter 10, where we're told that God made the sun stand still in the sky for the sake of an Israelite victory in a battle against the Amorites. Right? This is how Bellamin responded to that. I say that if there were a true demonstration that the sun is at the center of the world and the earth in the third heaven, and that the sun does not circle the earth, but the earth circles the sun, then one would have to proceed with great care in explaining the scriptures that appear contrary and say that we do not understand them rather than say that what is demonstrated is false. Notice, Bellarmine <clears throat> did not say it could never be the case because we have these passages in scripture that say otherwise. What he said was, if it's demonstrated, then we have to go back to those scriptures and understand them better, right? The interesting thing is that Bellarmine was quite aware 
because he himself was a great natural philosopher. Bellarmin was quite aware that Galileo had not proven his idea. And in fact, it was under contention among many established scholars and astronomers of his day. But if Galileo was to demonstrate heliocentrism, the sun at the center, the earth moving around the sun, it would require a new way of interpreting scripture. You see the development that happens there, right? It's only hypothetical at this point. But later on, it becomes a reality when we find out that Galileo was, in fact, correct. Two and a half centuries after Bellarmine in 1870, the Catholic priest and theologian St. John Henry Newman would make a similar judgment in light of Darwin's theory of evolution and the newly discovered ancientness of the Earth, which scientists of his day had speculated the Earth to be anywhere from 20 million to 400 million years old and not 6,000 years as had once been assumed. In response to those new hypotheses, Newman did not reject them, but was entirely open. He noted the distinction between primary cause and secondary causality, with God as the primary cause and creatures as secondary causes. He says, if secondary causes are conceivable at all, an almighty agent being supposed, I don't see why the series of living things should not last for millions of years rather than thousands. Now, that's significant because the Bible, if you count up all of its ages, as creationists often do, right, you find out that it comes to about 6,000 years, right? 2,000 years back to Christ and then 4,000 years before that. Newman saw that as not an issue, right? Recognizing this new scientific knowledge simply meant we can better understand what God is trying to tell us in Scripture better. In all three cases, and there are many more, we see important representatives of the Catholic tradition giving the discoveries of science, real discoveries, not just general hypotheses or speculation, a kind of veto power in interpreting biblical texts. When new scientific knowledge is achieved, it then serves, as it did for Augustine and Bellarmine hypothetically and definitely for Newman, It serves to help us understand how to better interpret sacred scripture. Scripture is not held as a reason to reject new knowledge. Contrary to Draper and White, the witness of the church's tradition teaches us that reason can always inform and strengthen our faith. Because truth can never contradict truth. I want to go to the second principle now, which for me, I find even more exciting than this one in some ways. Because besides keeping faith and reason together, we also find a second principle over and over and over again in the history of the church's great theologians. A commitment to the integrity of nature for the sake of honoring the creator. Now, according to Draper, and I'm quoting him again, he liked to refer to the church's dumb ideas, as he thought they were, right, as the sacred science, right, which he was constantly mocking. He says, the sacred science likened all phenomena, natural and spiritual, to human acts. It saw in the uh, the Almighty, the Eternal, only a gigantic man. In another place, he says, the sacred science rejects the intervention of secondary causes in nature. Nothing could be further from the truth. The great thinkers of the Catholic tradition are very careful to avoid what we might call supernaturalism. What do I mean by that? They're very careful to avoid relying on divine, miraculous intervention as an explanation for how the universe works. 
which nowadays is often called the God of the gaps error. We come to something that science can't yet explain and we say, ah, God must be doing it through a miracle, right? And then science advances, we find the natural explanation and God is squeezed out of the gap, right? Um, that's what I mean by supernaturalism, same idea. Instead, these thinkers emphasize the wisdom of God and establishing the universe in such a way that it could bring about the ends he intended for it. For them, you could think of the universe itself as a miracle because it exists, but also because it is able to do God's will. They avoid suggesting any kind of divine micromanagement of the universe, and they reject the temptation to see God as constantly tinkering with or fixing the universe through miraculous intervention. I'm not rejecting miracles here. What I'm rejecting is the idea that we should think about miracles as something God's constantly doing to make this species evolve, or to make the earth turn, or all of those kinds of things. Now, once again, I want to go back to St. Augustine, because his commentary on Genesis is a prime example of uh, this commitment to the integrity of nature. Augustine, inspired by his reverence for God's perfect wisdom, found the idea of separate creative acts on God's part to be problematic, even to explain the origin of living things and even human beings. So it's narrated for us that God first says, let there be light, and then God says, let there be this, and God says, let there be that, right? But Augustine said that must be symbolic, because if God is perfect, his creative act must also be perfect. He shouldn't have to do a separate creative act for each thing he wants to create. Rather, God's creative act must lack nothing. It must require no additional divine acts to complete it. So Augustine speculated that God created the universe with everything it needed to be life-giving naturally. For example, he taught that all living things, human beings included, naturally existed in the universe from its first moment, not as actual organisms, but as what he called rational seeds, which he said, which he identified as existing, and I'm quoting him, in the very fabric or texture of the elements requiring only the right occasion to emerge into being. Now, he had no idea of how that would happen. He had no idea of common descent. He had no idea from an original ancestor, nor of natural selection and genetic variation. But the integrity of nature as the source of life that Darwin would champion was already being celebrated by this father and doctor of the church one and a half millennia before Darwin. And following Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas would later say in his Summa that, quote, in the first founding of the order of nature, we must not look for miracles, but for what is in accordance with nature. We have numerous examples of this same respect for the integrity of nature in the Middle Ages. In the early 12th century, Adelard of Bath wrote his Questiones Naturales, or his questions on nature, which marks the dawn of medieval science. He wrote it in the form of a Platonic dialogue. Are you guys familiar with the Plato and the dialogues? Yeah. He, he wrote it in the form of a Platonic dialogue between himself and his nephew. His nephew believed that the spontaneous appearance of life in a dish of dried soil was miraculous. At a time when there was a strong devotion to miracles, it would have been easy for Adelard to say, hey, you know, you must be right. Instead, 
he drew a firm distinction between the action of the creator and the natural workings of his creation. It is the will of the creator, he said, that herbs should sprout from the earth, but the same is not without a reason either. When his nephew persisted and pointed out that from his perspective, that a natural explanation from the doctrine of the four elements was inadequate, right? Earth, air, fire, water. Adelard stuck to his point, even though he didn't have a scientific explanation to offer his nephew. He said, whatever there is, is from him and through him, meaning God. But the realm of being is not a confused one, nor is it lacking in disposition, which so far as human knowledge can go, should be consulted. In other words, we should persist in seeking natural explanations for natural phenomena and avoid attributing anything we do not understand to the direct miraculous intervention of God. Centuries later, once evolutionary... See that? Does it look like a beard to you? Because it is. Okay. Centuries later, once evolutionary... I told you, when you see the beer, what? The end, the end is near. Very good. Centuries later, once evolutionary biology suggested that human beings have an evolutionary origin, connecting them to all living things on Earth, the 20th century Catholic philosopher Charles de Koenig dismissed creationists. This is back in 1936. Dismissed creationists who considered such an idea of an evolutionary origin to be an affront to the creator and to the special dignity of human beings. In his explanation, he makes it clear that the temptation of inserting miraculous explanations is actually not just bad science, but bad theology, because it deforms the natural order that all created things in the physical universe share in common. He said, creationism, which opens the world directly to God, implicitly rejects what is essential to the universe, the unity of order. How could you have an order of the universe if there was a creator constantly having to go in and change this or having to go in and zap that into existence and do those kinds of things? You would have no natural order, would you? Okay? He's already thinking here. He's thinking here just like Augustine, just like Adelard, just like Thomas, that God in his wisdom created a natural order because he wanted one. Right? And this is one of my favorite parts of this. Quote, I don't know if I have the whole one up here because it's a little long, but it's worth reading. In reference to human origins, he says, if man and the ape have a common ancestor, how would that detract from human dignity? Why prefer that man came directly from the mud? A preference somewhat lugubrious, a word that means mournful or dismal. A preference somewhat lugubrious from an ontological point of view a perverse matter of falling back into nonsense. For is it not a sin of angelism for man to deny his humble origins and to wish to have been given right off like a pure spirit, that is, like an angel? Is it not rather man's glory to be the goal of these immense efforts of the world, prodigious and concentrated with an eye to his arrival? These examples hopefully represent what I'm trying to demonstrate here. A thorough commitment to the integrity of nature. Why? Not because we want to put God out of the picture, but due to the perfection of divine wisdom and power. They show how very different the Catholic way of honoring the creator is from creationism. Although not all thinkers went as far as Augustine or Aquinas in offering various and in-depth speculations about the biblical narratives, 
The great thinkers of the Catholic tradition sought to appreciate as much as possible the causality of creatures, not to get God out of the picture, but to glorify God. Why? Because God is most profoundly at work when the universe is able to do his will. God is not one cause among many. God, for the Catholic tradition, is the cause of all causes. So the more a creature can do, the more it shows forth the power of God. The conic is right here when he sees that creationism incorrectly squeezes God into the picture of nature. Catholicism gives the whole picture to God. So these two golden threads which run through the history of the church show, I hope, at least in a cursory way, and more could be done, but we run out of time if we did, that the church's theological priorities have favored throughout history a harmony between faith and science. The emphasis on balancing faith and reason allows for reason to have a profound impact on faith, helping us develop our understanding of what God has revealed. The emphasis on the integrity of nature due to our reverence for divine wisdom encourages confidence that the universe can be understood by assuming that natural explanations exist and ought to be pursued. Just want to go to one final quote that I think summarizes everything here that shows really the folly of Draper and White, the fact that conflict is not the best way to characterize the relationship between faith and science. And that is this remarkable, memorable word, which serves as a maxim for all of the programming I do as the director of the Science and Religion Initiative at the University of Notre Dame. It's from St. John Paul II's 1988 letter to the director of the Vatican Observatory, and with it I'll conclude. Science can purify religion, he wrote, from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes, from turning a method sort of into a worldview, right? From saying that everything is only just matter or only just natural selection or so on, right? Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both may flourish. The prevailing misconception of inherent conflict between science and religion, of warfare between science and theology, is precisely that. A misconception, one forged by the propagandists of a distant past, based on their prejudice and prejudices and biased historiography. But it's also a challenge to Catholics today to adopt the humble, open dialogue and seek what he called the relational unity, fervently desired by St. John Paul II, between faith and science. The more that scientific literacy and discoveries become part of our common worldview, the more a sense of their relation to the Catholic faith becomes essential for our contemporaries to be compelled by the beauty, goodness, and truth of the Catholic faith. And with that, I'll conclude. Thank you very much. How are we doing on time? Maybe it's seven o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to answer any questions you have about what I've said or anything else you'd like to ask that has to do with faith and science. Yes, sir. Could you say a little bit more about uh, the concept of the God of the gaps and miracles mm -hmm. and the uh, uh, Sure. Absolutely. It's a hard distinction to make, but it's not hard. Once, once you get it, you've got it. The God of the gaps idea takes miracles and then transposes them on explanations about how the universe works 
naturally and under ordinary circumstances, right? But that's not what theologians are referring to when they're talking about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, right? Or any other miracles we might talk about. In fact, in my textbook, I have a whole section dedicated to what miracles are, right? Miracles are God showing us in tangible ways what he also expresses in words, the message of our salvation, right? And because of that, because it has to do not with how this world works, but the world, the ultimate transformed reality to which God intends all of his human creatures to come, right? It's not about fixing the way the world works, but showing us the truth of our salvation and communicating that salvation to us. Is that a helpful distinction for you? Yes. So if somebody tells you, tells me, there's no way that, uh, I'm just coming up with an idea, that butterflies could have evolved. God had to have created butterflies, right, directly. That's them telling me that how the world works requires God to constantly be inserting himself, or at least inserting himself at one point and zapping butterflies into existence, right? Mm -hmm. That's God of the gaps. That's supernaturalism. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? That's a miracle, right? Mm -hmm. So we can give ourselves over to that and should in faith, right? But not over to this because it's very different claims if you, think, if you, if you look at it. Yeah. Is that helpful? Yes. Excellent. Yes, sir. Oh, distinctions between miracles and non-miracles but yeah. also having or natural origin when do we like draw the lines for the so, sorry? when do we draw the lines for the well I hope I well let me say it again but in your own words we would draw the line precisely when people are trying to use miraculous explanations where they ought to be seeking natural ones well when do we seek natural explanations when we're trying to understand the ordinary phenomena of the world, those repeatable events, right, that sometimes we don't understand, right? Why do mutations happen that cause cancer? Um, what are the mechanisms involved in speciation? Where you have, you know what I mean, ultimately the, a variation that occurs that actually separates into two species. These are things that happen naturally in the common order of things, right? But when Jesus walks on water, right, when he heals the sick, right, he's about showing us that he's not simply, right, that, that this is not how it happens all the time, but rather that he is the God of nature, right? And that nature itself is pointing to a much greater reality that is to come, which is our salvation, the resurrection of the body and life eternal. You get the idea? So that's where you would make that distinction. That's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, miracles are singular. You know, it's not like, right, some miracles happen, like, say, at Lourdes. Miracles of healing have happened many, many times. But it's not like you go to Lourdes and you stand in exactly the same place in the water and that kind of thing, and it always happens, right? If we found that to be the case, we would have to start looking for a natural explanation. You with me? But the fact that there are miracles based on an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary, right, and, and so on and so forth, and those kind of things, each miracle kind of stands on its own, right? And can be investigated on its own. And it's precisely when we see natural causes producing effects that transcend the ability of those natural causes, kind of by definition, 
that's when we begin to talk about miracles, right? So dead bodies that stink don't come back to life. I mean, that are already decomposing. When Lazarus does, when that happens to Lazarus in the tomb, right? Now we're talking about a miracle. You with me? Is that helpful? At least to begin the idea of the distinction? Cool. Yes, sir. Um, I saw that you will be at the Wonder Conference on Faith and Science. Yeah. And which is one of um, the reasons I was, I was very interested in this uh, mm -hmm. event because I will not be able to attend that. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you what resources, like what um, books or documentaries, like what ways can I dive deeper into this topic? Sure. Because I'm very interested in research and all that, but I want to be more understanding and be more articulate when it comes to mm -hmm. faith and science and living, I guess you would say, in both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's start with the free resources. Um, CatholicScientist.org is the website of the Society of Catholic Scientists. It has all the videos of all of the society uh, presentations at the annual conference that they have. It has a series of questions, which as the theological advisor to the society, I helped them put together. Um, it has a monthly article. Um, interestingly enough, something closely related to what I was talking about tonight, a historian of science by the name of Christopher Greeny has an article about how um, another way in which Augustine dealt with discrepancies between the Bible and established science, right? And the Bible, it talks about the great lights being the sun and the moon. It was well known in Augustine's day that the stars were much, much larger. They were just further away, right? So then the moon in particular. So why are they called the great lights and the stars are not, right? And Augustine just adopts the science that's already been demonstrated of his own day. He doesn't see a problem with doing that. But there's one example of that. They have a great one on John, St. John Henry Newman is the patron saint of evolution. Um, that's the name of the article. Um, my talk tonight is an article on there. Um, I would also rec uh, recommend Church Life Journal of our institute. There's a whole science and faith section, and science and faith articles are routinely put in there. And then if you want to shell out cash, if you ever have any, I didn't when I was an undergraduate. Right? Um, I have a short book called Creation, A Catholic's Guide to God and the Universe. And then a much longer book, which is actually a textbook that I published in 2019, entitled Faith, Science, and Reason, Theology on the Cutting Edge. That's kind of a 360 sort of approach to this. And some of the stuff that you've heard tonight is also there. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Um, can you think of any scientific discovery, future, maybe even hypothetical, that could not be reconcilable with what the faith says today? Like at that point, you'd have to say, I want to be. I could certainly think of examples where we might find ourselves stymied because we've gotten used to thinking in certain ways, right? That certainly happened throughout history. And the situation around Galileo is a prime example of that, right? Um, it's just no one had ever tried to think about it in any other way, right? Once they realized it was necessary, which only happened when Galileo's heliocentrism was demonstrated about 100 years after his death, um, when it was empirically demonstrated that the Earth is moving on its axis and also moving around the sun. Once that was demonstrated, they had no problem moving forward. 
There was also some tension within Rome among certain members of the Curia uh, in response to accepting uh, Darwin's theory, right? But by the time of Charles DeConnick, as you see, by 1936, just a few decades later, that's gone, right? So, yeah, there have been situations like that, right? I don't think, I, I've given a talk on extraterrestrial theo, uh, life in Catholic theology, right? What are there are other rational species out there? What is their relationship to God? What is God's relationship to them? That kind of thing. I tend to be in the camp that says truth can never really contradict truth, right? I don't believe that we would ever find scientific proof that denies the deep, the central dogmas of the Christian faith, right? I mean, how would you do an, how would you, how, would, how through empirical method would you discredit the Trinity, right? Like, you know, but at the same time, um, I do think that in most cases it's about accommodating new insights in such a way that it deepens our understanding of religious truth. Well, one of the hypotheticals was what if we find evidence of other religions having more evidence or more, yeah. more reasons to be true? Would well, that yeah. be not reconcilable? Um, obviously, that would be up to the judgment of each individual who considers those possibilities, right? Yeah. So, but that wouldn't really be a matter of science. It would have to do with historical claims, right? Claims about teaching. I, yeah, that's yeah. what I hypothetically. Yeah, yeah, hypothetically. But I couldn't think of a scientific discovery that would, you know what I mean, make that, that different. Yes? Could you just touch on the Catholic understanding of evolution? Absolutely. Um, in 1986, John Paul II summarized it in one word, right? The, the theory of evolution um, provides no difficulties for the doctrine of the faith. That is, the idea of evolution, that there is a natural origin to all animals, including the human animal, right? Um, that that idea is not something that, for the precisely because of the integrity of nature, that we would find um, difficult to square with that idea. Indeed, Augustine had already laid the groundwork for that a millennia and a half before Darwin, right? Um, however, one thing that the church has insisted upon is that the human being is not reducible to the material, right? That there's a spiritual dimension to human beings that transcend materiality. Um, and Therefore, there is, for a long time, been this idea of the special, direct, or immediate creation of the human soul, right? Um, I think Pope Benedict XVI did the best job of explaining that as something that happens within the process of conception, not kind of next to it. It's not like God's got a soul cannon, and every time there's a human conception, he, you know what I mean, shoots a soul into a body. Because body and soul, if you properly understand them, are not separate things. Right, the soul is the form of the body. Um, so that, yeah, that's that's what I would say there. But the very best response was the one given by St. John Henry Newman, literally five years after Origin of Species came out. He says, there's so much similarity between monkeys and men that I would be surprised if there's no historical connection between them. He said, I would... Better expect, or I would go all the way and say, yeah, God created rocks with fossils in them and created trees in full growth, right? If I would reject something so obvious 
He says, I'm ready to go the whole hog with Darwin. Those are his words, right? So I think that's a good way of, of uh, expressing, you know what I mean? I'll take the whole hog with Darwin. Or dispensing, he says, or dispensing with time and history altogether, um, hold that God not only, not only created all species separately, but also fossil-bearing rocks. <laughs> anyway, that, 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 that's, a, that's a good one to chew on, I think. Sure. Uh, yes? Um, would you say that the like, scientific worldview and the religious worldview are at conflict with each other, as opposed to science and itself being in conflict? Because especially with like, this quote in particular, I've just got me thinking. Yeah. And I'm not, not saying like this is what it's doing, but like, I feel like you can like, read that and maybe think of them, science and religion, as you know, two equal parts that you can be in the middle but like, and, and receive enlightenment from both. But it seems yeah. like you can either have a religious worldview that is purified um, from science, but you can't really have a scientific worldview that's, you know, imbues religion. And I guess I would distinguish yeah, yeah. the distinction between science and like reason I understand. You're right. Science. I think you're making the distinction correctly. So the way that they operate in favor of the other in ways that can help the other are quite different, right? Theology or religion cannot be incorporated as part of the method of science. Science must always be, right? It has, it's an empirical method. It deals with matter, right? It deals with change. It deals with measurement. And as such, it doesn't even raise the question of God, right? Science tells us, Science takes things apart to show us how they work. Religion brings things together to show us what they mean, right? Well, what can happen in science is that somehow the method can be treated almost as its own god, right? Um, this is what he means by idolatry and false absolutes. That has to do with the idea that somehow if we just add the word only to a valid method of scientific explanation, we can dispense with all other explanations because this is all we need, right? So the magic of inserting the word only, right? Once you treat a scientific, a valid scientific explanation as the only explanation for everything, then you're engaging in the false absolutes that he's talking about here, right? Now that's obviously coming from outside the method, right? But remember the practitioners of science are human beings, right? They certainly have to ultimately decide how is this going to be used, right? Now, you know, I'm a great electrician. Does that mean I can now electrocute people? Well, learning, learning how to be an electrician will never answer that question for you, right? The answer to that question has to come outside. There are no shoulds or oughts in the scientific method. Should or shouldn't, ought or ought not. The whole issue of ethics of how we ought to or not use science, <coughs> of what methods we should employ to come about, excuse me, <laughs> engaging in scientific insight, right? What things we shouldn't do as we're trying to understand the world. Think about the Nazi war doctors and the horrible things they did. That's not something that science is going to answer for you, right? You need other forms of wisdom to answer that. You need a wider wisdom to answer that. You need ethics. And I would say ultimately you need a question about what does the world mean? What is the value of the human being, right? Science won't tell you, right? That's the way that science, religion can help science, is what John Paul II is claiming here. Is that a little bit clear? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I think you'll agree with me that of all the Thomistic Institute lectures you've ever heard, this one was without a doubt the most recent. All right, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.